Good afternoon. It is the 3rd of March, 2011. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience, San Antonio's Neuroscience Podcast. I'm Rama Ratnam, sitting in for your regular host, Dr. Soma Qureshi, who's not with us today. Our guest today is Dr. William Brownell from the Baylor College of Medicine, Houston. He holds the Jake and Nina Kamen Chair in the Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery. He's also Professor of Neuroscience, Professor of Structural and Computational Biology and Molecular Biophysics, and Professor of Bioengineering at Rice University. Now, his research is on the biophysics of the cochlea. Um, the cochlea is the end organ for hearing. It is an intricate and marvelous structure that provides the tuning and sensitivity that is so necessary for normal hearing. And Bill works right in the heart of it. He researches the electromotility or electromechanics of the cochlea. Dr. Brownell, you have our ears. Welcome to UTSNR campus. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Rama. It's a pleasure to be here. And around the table are uh, Charlie Wilson. Hi. And Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to get the ball rolling here by asking a very general question. And uh, you've been working on the electromechanical and signaling processes in the cochlea for quite some time. Uh, I know that your early work in this field was seminal because it showed that outer hair cells are capable of changing their length in response to electrical signals. This is called the cochlear amplifier, and without it, we would have very poor hearing or no hearing at all. Uh, could you introduce our listeners to electromotility and cochlear amplification? Tell us why it is important and what are some of the mechanisms. Well, that's uh, several important questions. Uh, electromotility is the name that was given initially to what we observed in the outer hair cell, namely when you change the transmembrane electric potential, you got a length change in the cell. And, the, and uh, this length change is conspicuous. It can be 5% of the length of the cell for very large potential changes. Uh, and it's graded, so a small potential difference change will pr- produce a proportionally smaller amount. It's uh, asymmetric. Uh, you get more of a response with depolarization, which causes shortening, than uh, you get with hyperpolarization, which causes the cell to elongate. All so, of this. So, are these the first cells that that was anything like that was shown, or is it? Is this a completely hair cell specific phenomenon, or? Well, this is a this is a question. It's the first time that it was conspicuous. Let's put it that way. Uh-huh. The I think back in the '60s there was a observation that neural cells change their refractive properties, an optical property, in as the action potentials passed by. Uh, and anybody who appreciates physics would say, oh, if there's a change in the refraction, there's been a mechanical change. Uh, a couple of years before I saw this in the outer hair cell, there were people working on squid axons, and they put a cantilever on the squid axon, and as the action potential went by, there was a twitch in the in the diameter of the uh, of the of the axon. That experiment was repeated recently using more contemporary techniques, uh, optical coherence tomography, and uh, the phenomenon is still there. It's now more precise. Uh, it's more closely tied with the uh, action potential than the original recordings that came out of NIH. So, so the the ability of membranes to move 
has been suggested by the optic early 60s observations, uh, empirically found in squid axons and crab axons, um, and then we just happened to see probably an equivalent phenomena that was going on in the outer hair cell. But bigger. But, well, very conspicuous. And, that, and this gets it to the, the dramatic specializations of the outer hair cell, which is uniquely mammalian. It defines the mammalian cochlea as opposed to a chicken cochlea, which has no uh, outer hair cells. Uh, and as far as, as, as people have been able to establish, this, the cells, when isolated, certainly don't have this conspicuous movement that is so easy to see under the microscope. Uh, again, it doesn't mean that it isn't there, and it doesn't mean that there isn't some other motile mechanism in the chicken ear, because one of the questions that Rama just asked was, what's the reason for it? Why, why is it a necessary uh, a phenomena? Why is it, uh, what benefit does it give the ear? Why, why does hearing require it? And then the usual answer is that it provides cochlear amplification to overcome the viscous dampening that is present in the fluid environment in which the hair cells find themselves. So as you get an increase in the frequency which is driving the organ, you're going to get an increase in the viscous dampening force because it is a uh, coefficient of the viscous coefficient times the uh, instantaneous velocity. And as you go up in frequency, the instantaneous velocity is proportional to that. So if you're going to hear anything that's happening at very high frequencies, you have to have a way to exactly cancel out that viscous dampening. And that's presumably what the cochlear amplifier is doing, what the outer hair cell electromotility is doing, and what perhaps other potential mechanisms that are found in other vertebrates may be happening. And this is the, the most likely candidate is some kind of a motor mechanism in the stereociliar bundle. So do we know what, like in terms of the functional uh, things uh, of canceling out this uh, this uh, elastic uh, uh, dampening, is it is it more important to cancel, uh, to, to not be dampened in in uh, amplitude, or is it more important to preserve face? Or do we know? <laughs> uh, well, this is one of the remarkable things about the, the outer hair cell and with in terms of the uh, electromotility, the force generation, is at constant phase, which, as you know, is, is sort of a remarkable property for any uh, electromechanical phenomena. It's, it's okay to talk about a constant amplitude response, but most people don't even think about the phase relationship. And so it's nice to hear the question. Um, when you... It, we've observed that nearly all membranes that we've been able to test have some kind of electromechanical response. They can generate force. And that force appears to be uh, have this, this property of constant phase. Uh, then when you add uh, molecules that are unique to the outer hair cell, you'll get a shift in that phase. Uh, and, but it's still at, at a constant phase angle. And then we've added, we can add toxins which block, are known to block the electromechanical response of the outer hair cell, namely aspirin. 
and salicylate will then cause a, a phase shift. But again, it's a constant phase relationship all the way out as far as has been recorded. So, so you have you have to ask yourself what is helping to maintain that constant phase relationship. Most people are used to thinking in terms of time. And you're well aware that if there's a if there's a time delay, that translates to a phase shift, even if the amplitude is uh, constant. So yeah, that's it. It's one of the interesting features of the of the outer hair cell electromotility that it, that it has this constant phase relationship. Another interesting feature is improvement in tuning. Yes. So I, I'm wondering is, is this the answer to the question I remember from long ago? Why the primary auditory afferents seem to have narrower tuning than was predicted by the mechanical properties of the cochlea? Is is it a big, is it a big change in tuning? Well, the, the afferents are reflecting the cochlear mechanics. And what you're remembering from long ago was the mechanics that were measured in cadavers yes. by von Beckerschey and other people and other animals where the energy source for the cochlear amplifier or even the, the cells themselves may have been gone or dead. So there was no, no uh, way for the... The co those cochlea to display the precise tuning. As the techniques for measuring uh, the displacements of the basilar membrane in living animals were improved, it was found that the actual mechanics were as narrow as the eighth nerve fibers. Huh. So that ceased to be a problem. Okay. So it is the basilar membrane, not the tectorial membrane movements, but, it, but this would... The cochlear amplifier has to do with tectorial membrane movements, right? It, no, but well, it, it's become more interesting because it turns out that there it, that the tectorial membrane is also capable of of carrying a traveling wave, that it has graded uh, mechanical properties, and that it itself has a a traveling wave in response to acoustic stimulation. So are the so, waves identical on the basilar membrane? They are somewhat matched. This is recent work that's coming out of MIT and the, and the laboratory of Dennis Freeman. And, and uh, they've uh, been able to show uh, very similar properties, but they, but they are also subtly different. But again, it, their preparation is a uh, in vitro... Uh, preparation where the tectorial membrane is all by itself. So help me understand what I'm... Because uh, I, I must be thinking about something wrong. But it seems to me that the basilar membrane is is moving, yeah. and then the the outer hair cell's motility doesn't affect... shouldn't be able to affect the basilar membrane's movement. It should be able to affect the tectorial membrane's movement. And I must, that must be wrong. Okay, well, the tech, that's, that is... A, the current understanding is, is that the tectorial membrane is more rigid than the organocorti basilar membrane, so that it, it's going to be more resistive, even though it's got a traveling wave. Okay, so it so you you then can get a force being generated by the outer hair cell pushing against the tectorial membrane, which then is mediating the basilar membrane mechanics. Oh, I see. So it's actually the 
pushing up and down on the basal membrane that's the most important yeah. thing. But but it's being held let's see, so it's being held at its apical end. Yeah, the, the stereocilia of the outer hair cell are embedded, the tallest row of the stereocilia are embedded into the tectorial membrane. But the basilar end of the outer hair cell isn't embedded in the basilar membrane. It's almost free 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 floating. No, it's it, it's in a cup formed by these diter cells, which are supporting cells, and then the, the uh, diter cells themselves may be uh, 10 microns before so you get to the basilar. So the mechanical limit. movement is carried by diter cells? Well, it's a, but the, the diter cell has this filament that goes off apically, and it's sort of like uh, Buckminster Fuller's tension integrity type of concept, you know, so, so it's sort of pulling up, and there's sort of Presumably, there's some sort of tension against the outer hair cell that it can then work against as as the, you get these length changes. Yeah. So, like tuning your shock absorber. Yeah, you're tuning yeah. a shock, shock absorber is what it amounts to. Yeah. But still, the main the, my original question: the main difference between the dead cochlea and the live cochlea's mechanical properties is the outer hair cell. Is right. That true? And and remember, you know, the outer hair cell is important, but it doesn't it doesn't work without the endocochlear potential and the current that is going through the stereocilia, which is generating the receptor potential, which the outer hair cell then translates into a mechanical force. So that answered at least one of the questions, like why is it important, or one of those. Other I think questions. yeah, it's, it is. <laughs> So that pretty much it relates to the tuning, improvement in tuning and sensitivity that you're capable right. of. Um, I had, let me follow up a little bit on the on on some of the mechanisms here. Now I know that uh, the architecture, as you know, as we understand it, is fairly complex of the particularly the lateral wall of the outer hair cells. Is I it possible to explain? Avoid using the word complex because that, that frightens people. Frightens people. Why don't you say elegant? Elegant. All right. Yes, right. <laughs> so, almost the same. It's almost the same. I think. <laughs> um, yes, certainly elegant. Uh, yes, right. I, I, I'll go with that. Um, no, my my question. The reason why I, I mention it is that is, will it be possible to explain in words what this fascinating archi- and elegant architecture of the, of the outer hair cell is? That would you know. Give the listeners an idea of what the mechanism actually is. How how does this thing change its shape? So I, th- I think what you're asking is the ultrastructural uh, composition of the cell. Uh, it like all hair cells, it, it ha- it's divided into an apical end with the stereocilia and a basal end that has synaptic mechanisms. But where the outer hair cell differs from all other hair cells is in this intermediate zone between the top and the nucleus, because the nucleus is displaced. You know, unlike an inner hair cell or vestibular hair cells, the nucleus is more or less central. But in the outer hair cell, the nucleus is down in the synaptic pole. And then in between, and this can be quite a distance if you're in the low frequency region at the apex of the cochlea, where you can have a 90 micron long cell, and then down in the base, you can have a 15 micron long cell. So there's a, there's a gradient in terms of the lengths of the cell. And the nucleus is always down at the bottom. It's always The diameter is always between 8 and 9 microns, uh, despite these long changes. But in between, 
is where the outer hair cell is unique, and this is where the motor mechanism for electromotility is found. It's in that lateral wall. And what is unique is what's not there in the first place. In the, in the very center of the cell, you don't find uh, polymerized uh, cytoskeletal elements. So there's no uh, actin cytoskeleton. That, there's no intermediate filaments in, in the outer hair cell, period. Okay. Um, microtubules are, are sometimes present if there's a need, if there's been some kind of damage and there's a need to move membranes around. But if the cell is healthy, you don't even see microtubules. And then uh, what distinguishes the, the lateral wall of, the, of this cylinder is that it is a trilaminate structure. The outermost layer is the plasma membrane, and that, and that membrane has always been rather ephemeral. Uh, you know, in transmission electron microscopy, it, it's never been as dense as a membrane-bound organelle, which is immediately below the plasma membrane called the subsurface cisterni. Subsurface cisterni has an inner and outer layer and a lumen, uh, the compositions of which are not known, but those membranes are crisp. You see the, the railroad composition that is often associated in the electron microscope with, with membranes. Um, and then in between the subsurface cisterni and the plasma membrane, a gap of between 30 to 40 nanometers is the cytoskeleton of the cell because there is a cytoskeletal matrix, a so-called cortical lattice, composed of actin, which is primarily uh, circumferential, and spectrum, which is primarily longitudinal. And so this is, this is a very spectacular type of organization that, that is perhaps shared by bacteria, because bacteria have double membranes, and they also share another feature of the outer hair cell with the outer hair cell, namely as a turgor pressure, because the cell is maintaining its shape with a positive hydrostatic pressure inside the cell relative to the media outside the cell, the bathing media. And it's that turgor pressure pushing against the circumferential actin filaments, sort of a barrel hoop type of arrangement, that maintains the cylindrical shape of the cell and gives the cell its longitudinal compressive strength, but also allows the cell to undergo the deformations, uh, rapid deformations, without losing energy to movement of a rigid cytoskeleton. So is there, are there uh, comparative studies of outer hair cells and across mammals in terms of... Is it interesting to think about how these the evolution of this set of mechanisms and where it came from. Is there any sense of more or less primitive outer hair cells where, that, that are, are they pretty pretty common, I mean, are they pretty similar across mammals that have been, at least that have been studied? Uh, there's, each of the structures that I've mentioned, the subsurface cisterni and, and the cortical lattice, not so much because the cortical lattice is hard to study, but specifically the subsurface cisterni, has been subjected to uh, comparative analysis. Not so much in terms of the evolutionary concepts. I mean, 
it's hard to identify what would really be considered a very you know, example of a primitive mammal at this point. But in but um, low frequency animals like the mole rat usually will have multiple layers to the subsurface cisternium, and mice and rats will barely have a single cisternium. Uh, we have a single cisternium, okay, humans, and, as well as other higher primates. Um, so, uh, but what the multiple layers really mean is not clear. It may be just that they're part of a re- membrane recycling thing just to maintain that single uh, cisternal layer. Uh, so it, there's still confusion. We're just, we're just describing the differences. And I don't think anybody's dared to think in terms of an evolutionary argument. You've got to find some differences first. Right? Yeah, right, right. So you conspicuous conspicuous right. differences, yeah. yeah. So. We always think about actin as being part of motility, but in this case, the actin is not an active part of it. Is a it is a sort of the rigid part of the of right the cell. It's acting like a cable rather than like a muscle. That's right. That's correct. And it is the membrane itself that's actually the yeah. The motor is part of the membrane. So, so that it seems that to me the heart. Part of understanding this is figuring out why the cell contracts in the direction that it contracts. You mean why the axial, the length changes are why so conspicuous? Why length changes are bigger than the other changes. Well, so, for example, the action potential yeah. in the axon makes the axon diameter change. Right. Makes kind of sense to me. In this case, though, it would be like having the axon shorten when it fires the action potential. Well, apparently axons do change their length, too. Huh. Uh, but this is... This is a piece of information that that may not have been as ardently studied as needs to be studied. You know, remember, we're talking about data that was collected 30 years ago, and it may be time to revisit that particular feature. However, the, the, there is a compensatory diameter change in the outer hair cell. Uh, it's presumably to maintain the isovolumetric aspects of the cytosol. So that as when the cell becomes shorter, it becomes wider, uh, or it comes longer, it becomes narrower. So that much is there. Now, the why it why you have the more conspicuous length changes uh, may be twofold. It may be that the motor is designed to do that. Uh, we have our ideas, our personal ideas in the lab is uh, that it's a has to do with the bending of the membranes and that the, the membranes are maintained in ripples that are more circumferential. Uh, but it's also a case that the spectrum is more elastic than the actin. So spectrin is is a, a more compliant molecule and it's more easily deformed or compressed. And so the, so it's more you would see any force being reported more completely in that longitudinal direction, whereas the diameter would be more constrained because of the actin. I see. So if you just uh, if you just cause the membrane to squeeze in every direction and then give it a really strong structure that refuses to let it go in one direction, yeah, you're forced to go the one way that it the, could, or the other, right? Yeah. So. So what about the end? With uh, underneath the stereocilia, what happens? This the structure of the membrane. 
there. I mean, I can picture a two-dimensional tube with two things running. Well, does it cover over? Does the membrane continue over over the end? You, you mean the subsurface cisterni or the? Well, the the end is trilaminate too, because first of all, the outer hair cells, uh, what's called a cuticular plate, all hair cells have a uh, cytoskeletal matrix uh, composed of actin and some myosins and other cytoskeletal proteins into which the stereocilia insert. And all of those have a cuticular plate that is convex into the cytosol. And it and it's sort of an island because there's like a ring around uh, the cuticular plate and it, that doesn't touch the supporting cells. The outer hair cell, first of all, is a thicker cuticular plate and it is concave into the cytosol and it goes completely to the edge. There's one small hole that's left where the kinocilium, the basal body, is and where the kinocilium used to be, uh, and that's called a funiculus, and that that is necessary because there's translocation of uh, vesicles that have to replenish the membrane of the apical end, and they're operating through that that small space. Okay, so so there's a big cap on here. There's a big cap. Yeah, it's a big cap. So it's ideally designed to uh, keep the pressure. That because uh, if you that pressure is necessary for the electromotility, if you if you uh, take it away either osmotically or with a patch pipette, and you suck the, the cytosol out, you don't you no longer get electrical motility. You get no longer see the movements, but you still continue to see the, the charge uh, movement that is associated with electromotility. So, so how is the torque pressure maintained? Is it by Aquaporins? Um, well, we've made some measurements of the permeability of the cell to water, uh, and it's it, under normal quiescent conditions, you don't see that much water permeability. In fact, it's equivalent to plant cells in terms of which you know also have turbid pressure. Right. So, so. Uh, so what is maintaining it is anybody's guess. We don't know what the osmolite is, but my guess would be that because the cell has more glycogen in it than the liver cells, that it, it, it could be the glucose that is being regulated by uh, the, the lysis or the genesis of the, of the glycogen that you can, it's either breaking down or coming back under enzymatic control and that that's what's helping to maintain the turgor pressure. So we don't really have to have a lot of water movement. You have water movement associated with ion movement. You know, whenever an ion is mm-hmm. is coming through the mechanoelectrical transduction or going out the ion channels that are at the base, there's got to be water movement there. But basically in the uh, quiescent cell, you don't see that much water permeability. So, you know, I, I don't know if that answers the question about aquaporins, but, but, and I don't know that anybody's done a experiment where they've looked for the aquaporins. But. The, um, one of the things that I seem to understand is that the membrane is capable 
of um, so if you if you provide an electrical signal, the membrane will flux. The membrane will move. Move. It will generate force. Right. It will generate force, and you call this. You refer to this as uh, flexoelectric. That's our our working hypothesis for the mechanism to explain the force generation through a membrane. Yeah. So why this mysterious molecule protein, uh, prestin, which is this uh, so-called motor protein, it is a motor protein. What does if the membrane is able to flex by itself? What is the role of prestin in this case? So it's it's no longer mysterious. <laughs> elegant. It's an elegant. It's an elegant one. Uh, no, prestin is a was first identified uh, in the outer hair cells. A differential uh, expression between inner and outer hair cells, and they. They uh, isolated this one conspicuous blob in the Western blot and, uh, and characterized it and then expressed it in other cell types and endowed in those other cell types a, uh, some of the characteristics that you associate with the outer hair cell. So it's, a, so it's clearly a very important component of the motor. Uh, it's important to say that it is a membrane protein and therefore, it, it's part of the membrane, and I, 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 it's still best in my mind to call it a membrane-based motor mechanism, but to be rather Catholic about the interpretation of what a membrane is. A membrane is not just lipids, okay? A membrane is all the things in, that a cell membrane has, and this is hundreds of different types of lipids and many, many different types of proteins, uh, that are membrane proteins, uh, glycolipids, uh, sphingomyelins. You know, it's just, it's just a, a huge collection of amphipaths that make up the membrane. And the char- one of the characteristics, of, particularly of a biological membrane, is that the the surfaces are charged. So all of those charges can respond to a change in the transmembrane electric field whether they are intrinsic to a integral membrane protein or whether they are the charges that are on the surface of the membrane. I mean, people tend to ignore the fact that the membrane is charged. They, they concentrate on so-called voltage sensors in, say, a voltage-gated ion channel. Um, but, you, but a charge is a charge, and it's going to respond to a change in the electric fields. So, you know, there's... It, it's just the physics of it. So I, I look upon the membrane as being capable of undergoing movement, and based upon uh, our understanding of the family in which Preston is related to, of uh, anion transporters, it's perfectly consistent with the fact that um, in order to get uh, Preston-associated charge movement, you have to have chloride small anions, such as chloride or bicarbonate, inside the cytosol, in the, in the cell, in order to get it. Because if you remove those with a patch clamp and dialysis, you will not get Preston-associated charge movement. So, the, so all of this is con- consistent with the fact that you have an anion transporter that has been specialized for high-frequency response. This is what's characteristic with... You, you, you have prestins that are, that are different 
chicken hair cells have Preston, zebrafish have Preston, even the platypus has Preston. Okay, and what is distinguishing the, them is the their ability to transfer charge at high frequency. So there's a, a upper limit for zebrafish uh, charge movement that is hundreds of cycles per second. It becomes higher for chicken Preston, higher for a platypus, and higher for a mammalian outer hair cell. And that may be getting to Todd's question about evolution, because uh, even though these are not ancient things, it's sort of speaking to the evolution of a, of a molecule as opposed to a cell. We know what charges they are in this molecule. Are they charges that are embedded in the in the membrane and in the membrane and you know the helical part that's in the membrane? Are they charges that are out on the edges of the membrane or the? There there are charges, but you're asking a question that there's no answer for because these the tertiary structure of of the of Preston in particular and in the family in general is not known. You're, I think you're well aware of the problems of crystallizing membrane proteins. And, but the, those, those uh, membrane proteins more and more are being crystallized, more and more are being analyzed so that we're getting a better understanding of the tertiary structure. And um, hopefully sometime in the next couple of years we'll, we'll begin to get a tertiary structure of any one of the family. If we if we can get one of the member of the family, it really will help us a lot. So since I'm, in, I'm asking questions that, that don't have answers, I'll go ahead and ask the other one that okay. may or may not. So a uh, membrane being two-dimensional, there just seems to me to be sort of two possible modes of movement. It could shrink and it could change its surface area or it could bend. Yeah. So which one do we think it is? Is it bending or is it changing its surface area? If you're asking me, yeah, then I'm which asking. one do I think? <laughs> I think it bends. Okay. And I think this is consistent with transport properties. Uh, what I, when I first heard that uh, the Northwestern lab had isolated Preston and that it was a member of the transport, of anion transport family, I thought, what? <laughs> Why transporters? What, what, uh, you know, what's 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 so special about them? What, what's the problem? What, why, why would it, one of them become modified to be this special uh, protein that's part of the the membrane-based motor for electromotility? And then, and and we had already been working with the the membrane bending model for electromotility. We'd, we'd come out with. A theoretical paper that that showed we could, with standard flexoelectric coefficients, we could get enough force to stretch or compress spectrum, which was yeah, you know, which was sort of a proof of principle. Um, and then it, and then it dawned on me that the transporters could be using the bending themselves, so that as the the membrane is bending up and down, changing its curvature, you'll be get this transferred without having to have a substantive conformational change, which is energy requiring uh, on the part of the protein. It just needs a hinge in order to, to do these bending. And, and this would then allow for the, the uh, opening and closing of 
a compartment so that the anions could move in and out. And if it was a complete transporter, it would move through. Uh, so, so I was happy with that. And then I had an, ep- I guess you would call it an epiphany, because I realized that one of the problems with ion movement, if you if you put a a, a transporter in the table here, and you imagine a gradient, and these are gradient facilitators. They're not they're they're not active. It's not an ATP based transporter. So they're just there's just some change in conformation that's allowing it to facilitate the movement of a substrate through a gradient. And as it moves through, you're going to get a buildup of that substrate on this side, which is going to equilibrate the gradient and diminish it. So how can I get rid of that unstirred layer? It's a nano vortex. It's just moving up and down, and it's it's helping to stir this unstirred layer and facilitate the the transport process. So, so where the epiphany came in is, I said, oh, and if I had a way of enhancing the electrical field to produce a rapid voltage change, so I could get a a real kick in terms of the membrane, I could do that. So all I need to do is have the evolution of a voltage-gated ion channel. And that may explain why even the most primitive cells have voltage-gated ion channels. Because I can never figure out why why would an archibacteria, what benefit does it have to have a a voltage-gated sodium channel? But here, if I'm coupling it with the function of transporters, I'm now helping to get rid of rid of waste products or to take in nutrients which are necessary for the viability of the cell. So you're thinking that all cells' surfaces are sort of vibrating to mix yeah, the yeah. I, materials I, 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 along the... The living state is a living thing. <laughs> it's, it's dynamic. It's, you know, it vibrates. <laughs> and what is the role of cholesterol in this? Well, you may be referring to our recent work where we've demonstrated that, that the concentration of the cholesterol changes Preston-associated charge movement in a dramatic way, changes electromotility, um, and what we find is that Preston function and electromotility is best in a low-cholesterol environment. And this matches an, an early observation that we made uh, where we where we looked for the distribution of cholesterol in the outer hair cell, and we saw that it was minimal in the lateral wall and maximum at the two ends. And this is exactly matches what is known about the electromotility. So, so I have kind of an off off the wall question that maybe come from too much of my an active visual imagination. <laughs> so uh, you're talking about these hair cells. They're funny-looking cells um, with these hair sticking out the end. And you're talking about having this, this uh, maintaining this osmotic pressure, something bacteria do. It is, then I, was, I, I, know, I know also that certain kind of um, antibiotics can, can disrupt hair cells. 
uh, specifically, and that's why they usually use it to to kill them in birds and get them regenerating. Is there is there something particular about all these kinds of things that these cells are in some state that are kind of they're like the bacteria in your ear or something? I mean, is there something? You know, <laughs> well, like a, I, I thought it was like a flaw. No, it's a, I don't know. I, I like it. It's like the mitochondria. Yeah, well, no, it's a, well. It's actually I, I used to have flash a, a slide about common common features of gram negative bacteria and outer hair cells. And they they both have turgor pressure. They both have trilaminate walls, and they're both vulnerable to the aminoglycosides. Is what what you're talking about? And, um, yeah, and bacteria have a different kind of motor protein. Your flagella, the flagella motor protein. Which well, yeah, yeah, but well, the the flagella proteins. I I look at the um, the gliding bacteria, which is a huge family of bacteria that don't have flagella, mm-hmm. but move. That uh, they're called gliding because they move along a substrate, and they they have rippled membranes, which are precisely you know, it, it, it's hard to identify what the ripples are in an outer hair cell because that would require a tedious serial reconstruction mm-hmm. that hasn't been done. But it has been done with these gliding bacteria. And when they glide, they rotate. And so the, the best model for how that happens is it's like a tractor. You get a peristolic wave of an electrical electromechanical change in the curvature of the ripple. And because the, it's a spiraling, it's not perfectly circumferential, it's a spiraling thing, the the, the bacteria rotates like it's this. It's paramecium, isn't it? No, paramecium is, has ciliates. That, so it's a, paramecium is ciliated around it. Right. But it also displays that metachronal wave waveform. Yeah, has. right. There, there is a peristolic right. type of, right. of wave that goes on. So, so, so yeah, the, what I'm talking about is a model. You can, you can take a bead and put it on one of these gliding uh, bacteria and it will move around it. Okay, you know, following presumably this peristolic uh, change in the ripple as it's going along. But then it would be protons that are that are that are uh, generating the electric field as opposed to ions necessarily. So. I think may I will ask one last question in case Charlie or Talbot. This is slightly different, and it's a more general question, and I, and I raise it because you were the one who raised it yesterday when we were talking. The question of why do we have this 1 is to 3 ratio of inner hair cell to outer hair cells? It's a consistent pattern in mammals, and particularly because hair, outer hair cells don't transduce sound. They, they don't really send sound information to the brain. No, no, they do. Everybody forgets the fact that the that in order to move, they have to transduce and convert the mechanical movement into a change in the electric field across the membrane. So, so they are true receptors, right? But, but, they, but, they, are, but they don't communicate correct. that directly to the brain, right? Right. Okay. So, so, so it's it's true that they are transducing, but they also serve a very important motor function yeah. that that ultimately is communicated to the inner hair cell. So, uh, so I, you know, I, I, I've been bothered for a long time by the, what is the rationale? Why should there be three uh, outer hair cells to one inner hair cell? 
And part of my concern it comes from personal experience because I know that the individual cell is capable of generating sufficient force to a single cell is sufficient enough to, to move mountains almost. I mean, you, you can, when times when you don't perfectly isolate a cell, you may have it still connected to 10, 20 other cells, and, you, and then you stimulate it, and all of those other cells are moving because this one cell is, is, is driving it. So I know that it's capable, and the amount of force that you can measure from individual cells that have been measured, you know, there's 35 piconewtons that that I that you can see from reports with atomic force microscope uh, uh, cantilevers. Um, yeah, that, that's a lot of force, and that's that's sufficient in order to affect the micromechanics of the cochlea. So then, why do you have three of them? And my the best guess I can come up with at this point is that it's it's probably to help uh, avoid uh, spontaneous oscillations. Because if if I get a a resonant property and I got all, it would be harder to get all three outer hair cells synchronized in in terms of creating that mm-hmm. that resonance than if I just had one. And then it could possibly drive the local area into resonance, and then we would get a spontaneous autoacoustic emission. Right. That's that's how it's generated. Yeah. Yeah. So. so okay. So that's so that's my that's, guess. That's an interesting. Yeah. 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 Because this is a consistent pattern seen in all mammals, even yeah. monotremes, um, in like platypus, right? Yeah. So that you have three to one ratio. Yeah. So it's uh, it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, just out of curiosity, if a human being could generate as much force as this hair cell. <laughs> what could be left? A truck? This is one of those like and and yeah. What is seventy? You said seventy-five piconewtons. Is that what it is? Yeah, right. In terms of if you could scale that cell out to the size of a human being, yeah, that to, would be to the mass. Yeah. If you were going to do it by mass, of course, we don't convert electric fields into into yes. mechanical force. So. Can it lift up the whole basal membrane? I mean, yeah, right. Outer right. <laughs> <laughs> hair cell is superhero. <laughs> you, you may have created a new cartoon. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing. I didn't realize that they generate that much force. Yeah. I was actually intrigued by your calculation on the electric field, where you suggested it's stronger than a lightning, right? I think. Yeah. Much stronger than a lightning. Yeah, right. That's You're halfway to superhero. I know. Right there. Yeah, it's right there. Right there. Right there. But that's but that the electric field is true of all the membranes, all the membranes. where, where, where right. there is a resting potential of around 100 millivolts. It's not. It's not. It's not just. It's not just the outer air cell. That's true. Okay, we've had a very interesting, entertaining uh, podcast, and I thank Dr. Brano for being with us. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Todd. This is Neuroscientist Talk. This is Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Okay. (laughs) That's right.